Hi everyone and welcome back to Eliminal Space. Today I'm in discussion with Felicity Gary. Felicity is a barrister and QC, originally from the UK and now based in Australia, who specialises in representing the world's most vulnerable people, including in the fields of human trafficking, modern slavery, sex trafficking, torture, terrorism, war crimes and female genital mutilation, with a specific interest in issues related to women. Felicity is also an educator, public speaker, teacher, university lecturer and mentor, and is a powerful advocate of the rights of prisoners and other vulnerable people, especially during this COVID-19 period. And last week, she was awarded Barrister of the Year at the Australian Law Awards 2020. So it's a huge pleasure to welcome Felicity to Eliminal Space. Hi, Felicity. Hello, thank you for having me. Ah, pleasure, thank you. And huge congratulations for last week. Oh, thank you. Um, it's it's very nice. I, at the time, I thought it was just a bit of fun. They had a virtual ballroom and I went along with some colleagues from Deakin University, but actually receiving it was lovely. It's quite hard to belong to a new place. So um, I worked quite hard to fit in and it was very nice to be awarded for some of the interesting things that I've done over the last year. You know, I'm not saying I'm the best barrister in Australia, but I did have a pretty big year. So <laughs> I, I was very proud to get the award. Oh, great. I'm glad you were you able to celebrate or we're in lockdown now. Or was it a virtual well, celebration? Yeah, no, about three days later, it was my daughter's 18th birthday. So we saved the celebrations until then. So we've actually had a 21st in lockdown for my son and an 18th in lockdown for my daughter. So we've done quite a bit of celebrating, really, right. um, making the best of lockdown, as uh, best yeah. that we can anyway. Yeah. And um, so how long have you been in Australia? When was your move from the UK? Oh, it's eight years now. Yeah, eight years. And we went to Darwin first. So... We went, officially we went to Darwin for a year and it, it's turned into eight. And after five years in Darwin, we, my son and I drove down the Stuart Highway. My husband and daughter flew, but my son and I did a road trip all the way down across Australia and uh, we moved to Melbourne. And uh, once we arrived in Melbourne, I said, well, why haven't we lived here? And uh, I sort of fitted in quite well. So um, I don't think we're going anywhere now. Yeah, great. Um I mean, it's probably the, the cliche question, the obvious question, but how did you get into, you know, human trafficking, smuggling, genocide? These are not everyday things that, that myself and probably most others can, can even contemplate. So what was your, um, your in? Oh, look, you know, I've always been noisy and interested in issues relating to women. Even at school, I had a fairly dynamic headmistress. I didn't do so well at school she left halfway through and I think that sort of changed it but she used to stop in the middle of the school song and Jerusalem would be the song that we sang and there's a moment when it says uh, I shall not cease from mental fight and she used to always stop at that point in the, in the hymn and say now then girls never stop the fight so she sort of taught us to be challenging and I was always pretty noisy and liked challenging things and the biggest challenges come from representing vulnerable people who nobody cares about you know prisoners are sort of bottom of people's list when it comes to human rights often so um, I've tended to channel that uh, into the work I've done as a barrister over the last nearly 26 years so I've always chosen the, the cases or the issues that are probably the most difficult and that's where I felt I'm needed because it's where you have to have the loudest voice and I'm noisy and of course it's always fascinating so I'm never bored um so it's, that's probably the straight answer to your question is that I've found situations where I'm fascinated by what I do and I'm allowed to be noisy or at least if I'm not allowed to be noisy I do my best to bring to people's attention those complicated issues. So look, as a barrister, I've got a reputation. People would say, oh, this one's got your name on it. And that, that would be a brief that was either a complicated area of law or a difficult client. And most often than not, both. Um, and at the beginning, I both prosecuted and defended, which often people don't understand. So I prosecuted cases where women and children were abused perhaps long before 
uh, many other people did and um and i can remember being laughed at at the prospect that i would actually be able to successfully prosecute for example the rape rape of the sex worker which was a very bizarre place to be um and now i defend cases involving terrorism where no one uh, considers that you can defend those types of cases either. So it's, I think there's also something about when people say, oh, how can you do that? So I think just watch me, you know, and I, and I do it. And I think that's why I feel needed in those places where other people think you shouldn't be doing it. So look, that, that involves terrible issues, always terrible, terrible issues um, that vex the community. And I hope combining that with being a professor also helps to educate people about how complex the issues are. So it seems that you've found your life calling, which most of us struggle with, you know, <laughs> right to the, right yeah, to the end. Is that fair enough? I don't know about that. Yeah, it's a nice thing to say. But look, I, I, somebody told me the other day that there's a phrase, a pracademic, and a practitioner who is also an academic. I tend to call myself a hybrid. But what I can say is the work that I do as an academic, the research that I do, I think really complements the work I do as a barrister. And I've always done that. I've always been obsessed with what's the law, how can it change if it needs to change. So I'm not so interested in what the law is, but what it should be. And you can't wait for a case. You may never get the case that could change that area of law. Occasionally I have done but you might never get the case. So you have to then make submissions to government or join an organisation to try and help get that across the line. So in the Northern Territory, for example, I worked with uh, health experts on changing the law on reproductive rights. And in uh, England and Wales, I worked with um, community and health experts on changing the law relating to female genital mutilation. And I still do that work. It's a situations where I've never had a brief. So I do work as a barrister supporting groups and organisations where the law needs to change or, or, or they're seeking to change the law in a way that I consider to be appropriate. So I help out. Um, so look, that's really where I'm coming from. I can't wait for a brief to change what I think needs to be changed. And Sometimes people will disagree with me, but at least then you can have the discussion and debate. Yeah. And I've heard you, you mention this word cross, that you get cross <laughs> and this is what motivates you into action. Can you explain this a bit more? Yeah, I think I've probably got a filthy temper at times. You know, I, get, I do get cross, uh, not nasty cross, you know, I just get frustrated cross, I think. But um, the law is so slow. When you read, as I have had to do in some cases, 500 years of law, and that's law that stems from England into Australia uh, and the threads of those laws through precedent, when sometimes they drift off and people are impacted by judicial decisions quite significantly. Uh, so when you read centuries of history, you realize we haven't actually come very far. We still round people up and lock them up um, and find ways to create rules that punish people very significantly without looking at um, either other methods of punishment, but more importantly, whether or not they really are criminally responsible. And that's most interesting in the context, for example, of human trafficking victims who commit crime. So somebody who is compelled to commit a crime by the actions of others um, is, is the area that I'm significantly interested in. Now, there, there really are no frameworks in Australia that are sufficiently protective for those people. We see them as criminals, but if people could understand that sometimes trafficked persons are trafficked in organised crime, which is well recognised across the globe, um, then we can start to think about whether they're criminals at all, actually, if they've been exploited as a result of disadvantage or sex trafficking or violence, abuse, duress, then, or even just abuse of vulnerability because they are in living in poverty and disadvantage. They've got no other option but to get on a plane and go be a maid in Saudi Arabia and someone puts drugs in their suitcase. In all of those circumstances, 
I like to think about that as explaining to the world, either in a case or through the research and advocacy that I do, that these people are not criminals at all. And that how, how we can move to a world where we don't prosecute people rather than constantly prosecuting people. And that's what I mean by choosing the hard, challenging cases. They're the ones that the general public, for a start, don't tend to understand. Politicians don't tend to understand. They don't get the headlines in the media unless you can have some amazing result, which I must say we have had. Um, and therefore, you have to sort of plug away and keep going. And these sorts of issues I've spoken about for, for over a decade now, longer. Um, and done cases in that context. So, yeah, I suppose I have. Taking on challenges, particularly in relation to how the law affects women, is, you know, it's a good path to travel. Yeah. And, um, you know, you mentioned growing up this, this um, you know, your experience at school, but what about your, your, family, your family life? Or, you know, did you have this sort of sense of social justice that was uh, drilled into you, perhaps, as a, as a child that you've, you've kept through your life? about that look my mum was a social worker for a bit and a school secretary for a bit and my my dad had a, a great sense of justice and he was a good debater he was a bit noisy too and uh, um, so we were and I was an only child so there's certainly intellectual discussion at home I don't think we were particularly radical I don't see myself as particularly radical but I can see disadvantage where that victimization comes from the state very well um, and because I, th I don't think I fulfil a stereotype, and neither of my parents did, I, I think that gives my voice a, a sense of uniqueness. You know, people don't quite know where to put me. I've always tried very hard not to be pigeonholed. And I think both my parents are the same. Uh, my father's dead now, but both of them, you, you find very hard to pigeonhole. And my father's mother was a huge influence on me, and she's much, she was much the same. You know, people that you don't quite know where to put them and and that makes you listen who is this person where do they come from what are they talking about um so i don't know that they specifically said off you go and fight the good fight but they um they certainly allowed me to be um unusual let's put it that way yeah. um so i always say you know it's quite hard being me but um it does allow me to have a pretty unique voice i think yeah it's amazing and, um, you know, we, you mentioned um, trafficking, sex trafficking, and in the same um, sentence, you, you mentioned Australia. Um, I know a lot of Australians, a lot of people in the so-called, you know, Western or developed world would, would think that, that trafficking, sex trafficking, smuggling, um, slavery is something that happens somewhere else. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, look, it's, it's a huge myth. Everybody thinks slavery stopped with the ending of the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. But all that did really was no longer make it lawful to own a person. It didn't actually stop the selling and exploitation of people. So we see people being exploited in labour exploitation, domestic servitude, sex trafficking, um, and trafficking in organized crime. There are various typologies that we absolutely recognize. So if you phrase it in another way, you think about, I don't know, farm laborers being exploited. Um, they, they don't have to come from abroad. Some do, some don't. But you can start to see how we could visualize exploitation in labor and um, on farms or in fishing or in the rag trade, so in clothing people being exploited domestically and overseas. Um, sex trafficking is a real problem because we don't really look at the difference between autonomous choices to, for sex work and where people are being trafficked in sex work. There's a sort of knee-jerk reaction to sex work that's somehow not a choice that people make or everybody's trafficked without actually looking at the issues. And then obviously trafficking and organized crime. If you think about children being used to supply drugs, for example, we can see that as exploitation. And in my view, it's exactly the same as child soldiers. And everybody understands what a child soldier is and the levels of exploitation that occur to force someone into being a child soldier. So once you start to use that type of language, 
um, people start to think about, oh, yes, you know, I, um, I understand it a bit better. If you don't use the legal language, then you can start to encourage people to stop and think about, well, firstly, is that an issue for in Australia? And secondly, what is the legal framework for their protection, which is where I come in. So you have to sort of research whether it's going on. And when you start to look at the figures in Australia, the AFP have a website, a web page that talks about human trafficking and how they're trying to prosecute traffickers and protect victims. And the numbers are really low. And I, I'm pretty confident they don't count the numbers of people who are sitting in prison, who in my view shouldn't be there, who are there because they were trafficked by others. Um, so the numbers are not collected particularly well. There is a consultation for a new national action plan and there's certainly policy to protect trafficked persons in Australia. But it's another example of where the law is very, very slow to move. Mm. Um, and, and frankly, because traditionally women were property, I think it's particularly slow to move for women and for issues that largely affect women. That's not to suggest men are not trafficked persons because they commonly are in labour exploitation. I've certainly done cases involving men as well as women. Um, but because it's an issue that substantially affects women, I think that contributes, contributes to why it's so slow to change because you've got a, um, a system that is largely male. Mm. So, it, it, you know, it, again, it fires you up, I suppose makes me cross. Um, but I think people are becoming more aware and that's not just because I'm working in that space, but because others have worked out that there are ways to implement international commitments to the protection of traffic persons wherever they pop up. Mm. And Australia is just a bit slow to the party. Mm. Um, I'm really curious as to, in your cases, you obviously have, um, well, I'm assuming, um, very close contact with people at times that have gone through very difficult experiences and so forth. And um, I mean, I'm a documentary filmmaker and there's always this, this sort of discussion or debate about how close or not to get to, you know, the people that you're filming with. Is this something as well that you have to deal with on, on, a, on a regular basis, sort of getting very close to the people that you represent? Look, um, look, we haven't, it, particularly defending, you have a unique opportunity to go into a prison or to meet someone who comes into your office who is at their lowest point. Um, whatever's happened to them in their lives has led to them being in that situation. And if they're coming to see me or I'm going to see them in prison, it's usually a really serious allegation. Murder, um, the sorts of human trafficking issues that I've talked about terrorism recently. I've done three big back-to-back -back trials in terrorism. So you're seeing people at their, their most extreme, if you like. You're seeing the state at its most extreme. It's power to lock people up for a very long time, even before trial, frankly, when they're meant to be presumed innocent. Um, so it's a unique opportunity where you get to see what most people don't. So, um, then publicly you can talk about the issues, but you don't betray the confidences of your client. So the person that you're seeing has to have confidence in you that you will keep their case confidential insofar as that's necessary and deal with uh, the way in which their case needs to be presented. And you have to explain, look, I, I can only do that as a matter of law. Um, you know, I, I can't uh, sympathy if you like, exists. Of course it does. You meet people in terrible circumstances and it's, it's just horrendous. And you, can, you can't empathise, because certainly I've never been in that position, but you can be sympathetic and knowledgeable and helpful. But actually the challenges you can take on their behalf are only the ways in which the law allows you to challenge or where you want to argue that the law is wrong and you want to change the law. So your relationship is never the same as somebody who is a friend because you often have to say, no, we can't do that. Um, or we're going to try this, but I'm going to tell you that your chances of success are low, but we'll give it a go. Here's what I think the law should be. We'll use your case to try and get there. So you're always in a position of 
a position of power and responsibility over someone else's life when they've got to a point where they really have no power over their own lives. So it just isn't the same as a relationship of friendship. And um, look, some clients are more likable than, than others, but if you also engage in that assessment of people, I mean, that's really patronising, isn't it? You know, so in order to do what I do, you have to sort of treat everybody um, with dignity and respect and with levels of dignity and respect for their case. Um, there's a very old fashioned expression about putting yourself in your client's shoes. In order to understand their case, you have to really look at it from your client's perspective so that you can present it on their behalf in court. So it's not for you to judge. The jury will judge that person. The judge might judge that person, but it's for you to present the arguments on their behalf and to present what they say is their side of the story. And that story has to have as much legitimacy as the prosecution story in order for a jury or a judge to make a decision. So you have to engage in their case it's sufficiently to give their arguments sufficient legitimacy to be considered by the jury so that the jury verdict hopefully is sound one way or another. So it's a very different relationship from making friends with people. That said, you do enjoy the company of, um, of the people that you meet. And I'm certainly still in contact with the mums of a couple of clients. You know, you sort of, you might make friends with people who are associated with the person that you, that you're looking after, if you like. So um, mums whose children are falsely accused in some way, could be anybody you know you're not judging them by the fact that their child happens to be in prison falsely accused of something or potentially falsely accused depending on what the circumstances and what the law are so um i've always been uh, affected by how cases affect the mums i suppose because i am one but you can keep it all very separate and you do a case and then walk away. Um, that's the oddest part. You know someone better than they know themselves for the period of time that you're doing your case. And then the case is over and if there's nothing else you can do, if you can't take it any further, you do just walk away. And they, they don't wanna see you again. It's a reminder of the terrible part of their life. They don't wanna know you again. They wanted you there to present their case. Uh, you don't engage in the same way as friendship. You acknowledge that you uh, have mutual respect and then you walk away and you never see them again unless they pop up uh, as a, a client on another occasion. So it's a very odd and strange relationship but it's a bit like doctor and patient in a way. You don't actually really make friends with your doctor, you just know that there's a doctor that you like better in the practice and you tend to go to that doctor and you might go to the same doctor for 25 years with repeat problems but they're not really your friend. Very occasionally, people make friends with their own doctor um, or they're in the same social circles as their own doctor, but it, it, it's pretty much the same. <laughs> um, you said something that, that's really fascinating to me. I'm uh, really interested in, in sort of psychology of people, in, in behavior, in, in what makes people do things, basically. Um, and also this idea of, are there bad people or evil people, or are there just people with bad ideas or evil ideas. I know this isn't directly to do with the work that you do, but you've, you've said that you get a really particular insight into people perhaps knowing them more than they, they know themselves. Do you have any, any, anything that you can contribute to this idea about are there bad people or just bad ideas? Look, I tend not to judge people, as I say. I, I don't think that's my role. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in the legal issues that their cases throw up. I'm very interested in them being treated with dignity and respect by institutions so that they're properly treated by medics, by the courts, by the prison services. But um, I suppose the answer to your question is there was a fantastic sort of Woodhousian barrister that I used to see in court years ago, 20 years ago, who was called Ross Fitzpatrick and he was known as Mungo. And he was a mate of George Carmen's, who was a very, very famous silk in England that did all the, the big defamation cases um, and was uh, recently represented in the 
documentary about Jeremy Thorpe, which was fascinating. So George Carmen, very, very well known and a very colourful character. And Mungo Fitzpatrick was his friend and the, the drink got to Mungo and he didn't quite rise to the uh, echelons that George Carmen reached, but he was a beautiful, beautiful advocate. And you could go into court and even when he was at his uh, most difficult, difficult in his personal circumstances because he um, became an alcoholic. You could hear him on behalf of clients give these beautiful stories to try and reduce their sentence having regard to their life experiences and he was so wonderful to listen to and very colourful English language but he would often start with the same line, it would sort of get him going and he'd say some cases are bad some cases are mad and some cases are sad. And this case is, and then he'd choose one of those and off he'd go and you'd listen to this wonderful oratory on behalf of his client. And I have no doubt it, uh, uh, it impacted on the sentence that the judge would give, even when the judge had heard it all before. You know, it was so wonderful to listen to and he really would understand his client. And it would be bespoke to the person he was talking about that day there would be information in there that would be solely relate to that person, that case, those issues. And it was worth hanging on to, to, to see how the art of advocacy can be so persuasive. And you, there's a sense of categorizing people, you know, is it a mental health issue? Is it something that was truly a, a, a dreadful choice? Um, or is it something that's just a as a result of their personal terrible circumstances, mad, bad, sad, then um, you, you can categorise people, but really only at the, at the point that there is a judgment to be made. So um, I like to move that into the trial process that we ought to differentiate in the sense of guilt, that there's less criminal responsibility that somebody has mental health issues or has a sad life in the sense of being a trafficked person, for example. I like to think that could lead to not guilty. But at the moment, we tend to deal with it in the sentencing space. So, look, you can probably categorise a case based on the evidence, but I tend not to do anything uh, more than that. I'm simply not a psychologist. It's interesting to understand the drivers behind uh, cases. Um, and I suppose it's really interesting to uh, try and change minds, particularly in the context of terrorism, for example. Everybody thinks terrorism is awful. And actually, they're often just a bunch of young blokes who have had their heads turned by some very good propaganda, which is not the same as somebody who is waging a direct war against states. So... Um, so that's also capable of being mad, bad and sad if somebody's been groomed or influenced to take part in something they might not otherwise have done. So I think that that's how I like to explain it, that there are um, the, the art of what we do is very, very powerful. Um, it takes significant experience and ability. And what we're doing is advocating on behalf of a particular individual but also as to how that fits within this bigger system where the state has so much power and, you know, challenging power is always, always fun. <laughs> well, I think you're not going to be short of, uh, of work challenging powers in, in the next little bit. Um, I didn't want to focus on COVID-19, but the reality is that we're living in this period, um, unprecedented times. You and I right at this minute are, probably only a few kilometers away, but we're, we're currently in, in, in lockdown. Um, not so much in, a, in an Australian sense, but just, just generally um, in a global perspective. What are your main concerns um, you know, of, of power um, and, and, and things like this that could be affected in the, in the next months, years due to, due to COVID? Yeah, look, I, I think there are three categories. I think the use of emergency powers needs to be understood as to how draconian they are. Um, it does, it's not a rule of law, it is a rule of power that you can order people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise be doing. And that includes going home and staying at home and not traveling more than five kilometers or wh whatever the current 
state of the rules are um, anywhere in the world. We're all subject to these massive restrictions. You know, I work internationally. We've mentioned genocide and torture. Uh, most of that work has been um, academic or advisory. But, you know, if I was called upon to go and work in an international case, um, I'd have to ask permission from the Australian government to go, um, which is a very restrictive power that exists for me personally and other people have been significantly restricted. The people in the towers in public housing in Melbourne suffered 500 police officers outside their door containing them um, as a, almost a form of detention. So we can think of examples of from our own perspective and from other people's perspective, particularly vulnerable people that show that these are very, very grave powers that the state has. So um, we then, where your worries come in are the overcriminalization of people. So that if you do something, you're going to be fined or you're going to be charged or we're going to make some new laws that um, if you spit on someone, you're going to prison for life or whatever it is. Um, for a public health, otherwise, what is a public health issue that in my view shouldn't create criminalization at all? Control of people pen during a pandemic, but not necessarily criminalizing people. So you've got the first issue is you're you're setting up systems that risk the criminalization of large proportions of the population. Um, so it's not just about infringement notices, but a, a good example is if someone gets a, an infringement notice, if they challenge it and say, well, look, I had a reasonable excuse. It's just that the police officer didn't think it was reasonable, but I did. And if you go to court and the judge agrees with you, all fine, infringement gone. Or if the judge doesn't agree with you, then the judge could give you a bigger fine or and you come with some form of criminal record. So what happens is then that people don't challenge. And worse than that, often people don't know that they have a challenge because the public information isn't it that actually you can do all these, here's the rules, here's the directions, here's the exceptions. So you can go out up to five kilometers, you can go to the supermarket, these are the exceptions. But what they, the government doesn't say is, plus you can do other things if, if you have a reasonable excuse because that reduces the amount of control that the government have. So you very rarely hear politicians or police officers saying, oh yeah, you know, also if you've got a reasonable excuse, we'll exercise a discretion. You, you do hear it. We've asked our officers, you know, to listen to explanations and so forth. Um, I'm not saying that's not been said at all, but it's not as loud as you can't do this. Um, so there is a real risk that people are criminalised, that they don't understand that they can challenge or they don't want to challenge because of the risks. And it's a public health issue. Um, so I have a real problem with these being supported by criminal sanctions. Um, second is discrimination. The way in which, and these are not in order of importance, they're just the second one that I think is really interesting from a legal perspective. You, are these powers being used in a discriminatory way? Um, and certainly there's evidence from New South Wales that policing was targeted at particular communities, not because that's where the rates were high of infection, but because that particular community was targeted. And there's some evidence of that. I don't think we've got similar figures in, in Victoria, and I haven't done the data, but it worried certainly in relation to the public housing in Victoria you've got public housing with a very high proportion of black and ethnic mi minority people in prisons you've got a very high proportionate number of indigenous people in prison so you start to think about terrific ways in which people who are um black and ethnic minority groups disabled vulnerable in some way mental health issues all of those people who are at risk of being more vulnerable in a powerful, largely uh, white colonial state are being affected by those powers. So you have to, and women in particular, so we've got issues around domestic violence, you know, um, how are people being affected by those powers and is it discriminatory? And, and what facilities are there for those people who are affected by those powers? So criminalisation, discrimination. And then, of course, there's the care of people. So in ensuring that they have rights to life and health. So in many circumstances, we've, we could, it's arguable, at least, that the state has taken on a duty of care. 
but even if it's not a specific duty of care that comes with a remedy, what you're really asking estates to do is make sure people have rights to life and health. And those rights are not derogable. You can't say, well, David, you can have your life, but Felicity, you can't have yours. We need to try and have processes where everybody has the rights to the highest attainable standards of health, because if they don't, your right to life is affected. So those are what we call as lawyers, non-derogable rights. You can't choose not to um, provide frameworks to ensure the highest attainable standards of health and the rights to life. And that becomes, um, it, it, it's not a balancing exercise. It becomes a, an exercise in taking positive steps. So what we see is positive steps to stop people getting COVID-19. We get that. We're trying to look after everybody's health and life because we don't want them to die of COVID-19. But then putting people in prison in isolation for 23 hours a day, 24 hours a day, um, quarantine and isolation affects their rights to life and health. Similarly in public housing, putting people, keeping people in a form of detention, including at times building a cage for exercise, that didn't last very long, inhuman and degrading treatment, but suddenly you can see how the actions of the state in trying to deal with COVID-19 can actually significantly harm people. And we can't just say, well, that's necessary in a pandemic because you're harming people. You're not giving them the right to the highest attainable standards of health. And um, that might inc include something as simple as providing culturally appropriate food. It's not rocket science, you, you know, to assume a duty of care or at least or have a duty of care or at least assume you have a duty of care ensures that we're doing our best for everybody in the community. Um, and that, then you have to think about whether the, how long those restrictions have to be in place and how you can harm a lot of people if those restrictions are in place for a long time. Um, and whether they can be justified as proportionate and necessary if numbers are low. And it's, these are really hugely difficult choices for uh, the state to make. Um, but there are choices that can not involve the police and actively involve the community and as i've often said at the moment what we tend to see is the state working with the police working with health but we don't see the community and there, it's perfectly easy to engage the community there are community representatives most areas have a mayor if that's the suitable access but you have community legal centers you the ombudsman is now involved there's really no um, a Royal Commission, for example, is not really the answer because that's after something's happened. I, I recommended very, very early on in relation to prisons having a task force. It, again, it's not difficult. You have a task force with representatives from police, state, health, community, and that it fulfills that idea that diverse people make for good decisions. Um, so that's what we haven't seen. We haven't seen upfront strategic planning that involve members of the community. And then you start to see mistakes and errors and that can harm people's health. And that's sadly where the lawyers come in because ultimately people's only access to justice is to instruct a lawyer. And if it had all been done upfront from the first place, you wouldn't need a lawyer. Um, so that's where I, I take the view that prevention is better than cure. You know, if you can engage communities at the front end with strategic planning, um, it's much more likely to have a healthy outcome for everyone. Yeah. So I think certainly for us sitting in Victoria now, for us to go back in on a second lockdown was really, really hard and nobody's going to want to go back in again. And maybe we wouldn't have had to go back in again if there'd been strategic planning involving the community because it's... Um, it, it largely seems to be the result of frameworks not working around incoming people from abroad, which is manageable if, it, if managed properly. So look, if, it, if these are mistakes because it's such an extraordinary situation, they're not mistakes that should be running any longer, uh, but they are mistakes that may have significantly affected the health of some, some people. And we have to have regard to that. Yeah. You can't go around in your small world ignoring the harm that can be caused to other people so you know i buy into wearing masks 
I'll be buy into lockdown. I absolutely think it, those things are the right things to do, providing they're not having a significant effect on the health of of people individually or generally. And the way in which we can assess all of that is to is to review things. So a small review on criminalisation, for example, in England and Wales, they reviewed every single charge under certain legislation. And under one piece of legislation, they found that 100% of charges were unlawful. Now that didn't require individuals to go to court and take the risk of being criminalised. Of course, they wouldn't have been if they'd gone to court because it would have been discovered that they were um, unlawful, but people are too frightened to challenge um, or don't know that they have a challenge. So if you review every prosecution, every infringement notice across Victoria, my bet would be you'd find some that were unlawful. And that doesn't mean that individuals have to challenge the state. It's actually the state being proportionate and accountable. That's not to suggest that there isn't good management going on. It's, it's simply that in the absence of, of community involvement at that same level as police, health and state, there are inevitably going to be mistakes and some of them will be big and some of them will have affected people's lives. My sneaking suspicion of 500 police officers outside public housing is that there will be some people that are fundamentally traumatised by that. It looks like something out of a, a horrific movie. Yeah. So that's what's really interested me in lockdown. You know, what's the law? How's it being applied? Why isn't it being applied in that way? This is how the law should work. Why isn't it being done in that way? Um, and sometimes you get a case and sometimes you get to just do public advocacy like this uh, podcast with you. Yeah. Um, so that's really where I'm coming from in, in lockdown is partly it's given me the opportunity to be a keyboard warrior on issues like human trafficking, genocide, torture, you know, domestic responsibility for international torture, those sorts of questions around, are we looking in our own backyard as to who's responsible for genocide and torture abroad. Those are really big issues. So I can catch up on some of the work that I want to do there while I'm not in court, but also those very direct issues as to how the community are affected by the very powers that are supposed to be protecting us from a virus. Yeah. So yeah, really hard work, really complicated, really interesting and things to shout about. Uh, and capable of being shouted about even when you're in lockdown. Yeah. So right up my street, really. Um, I know time is so precious and valuable. Um, do you have time for me to just ask one more question? Go on then, one more. <laughs> so I was reading last night, um, United Nations Population Fund released a report called Unlocking the Lockdown. And it predicted that there'd be 13 million child marriages and a whole increase of trafficking and smuggling due to um, issues of closed borders now with COVID and also many people um, who can't uh, make a living being forced to, to, to go abroad and perhaps, you know, getting involved in these trafficking and smuggling um, rings, let's say. Is this something that, that you're actively thinking will be a big issue and problem in the, in the next years as well? Yeah, I think you have to accept that the UN Population Fund knows what they're talking about. And there is massive exploitation across the world. The, the numbers for human trafficking and the profits being made, whether that's in organised crime or corporate supply chains, are just huge. The amount of profit being made out of people in poverty is well-researched, well-known. I use those words deliberately. They come from an International Labour Office report in 2014. The exploitation of people is uh, the gravest problem that we have globally. It is modern slavery. People are enslaved in different ways and exploited in different ways across the globe all the time, whether that's in Australia or outside of Australia. Unless you have systems and processes that do those three things, prevent, protect and prosecute, unless all those three are working to the equivalent level so that we protect people even when they've committed a crime, if they're a traffic person, or we, um, or if they're uh, the result of migrant smuggling, that we don't prosecute them for paperwork and document offences and we work out 
are they in fact asylum seekers and should they are they worthy of protection and should we have a system in place millions of people are going to be displaced by climate change so we need to get processes in place now um and some of them are not rocket science you know um i was talking the other day about statelessness there are millions of people across the world who just who are labeled stateless but it really actually means they haven't got a document that says where they're from that just needs a process i think you have to listen to the un population fund that's not political it's a practical reality that's very very well researched um doesn't of course hit the front pages ought to in many respects what are we going to do about these people that belong to us um, would be a much better question than what are we going to do about these people that we perceive don't belong to us. Yeah. Let's have a process that works that out. Um, and it's a kindness, isn't it, that we don't leave people in, in camps in terrible conditions where their children die, that we don't have people exploited in factories that then collapse so they die, that we don't have children... Um, working when they're young and they should be educated that we we have access to education and 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 family and good health that doesn't include gendered uh, conduct like female genital mutilation or pressure on uh young women to have labiaplasty because they they want to look like people in uh porn channels you know so all sorts of those terrible issues that arise that we can have people who make autonomous choices about difficult issues whether it's labeled fgm or yeah. some other sort of health consequence so look these are really complicated issues but i think you do have to listen to the research and it's always easy for someone who denies the research to get a platform but that isn't really balance that's just somebody ignoring what is so well known uh, and i suppose we can end on my concern at the um attitude to experts in many ways that social media seems to have so much weight against proper research that is undeniable when you actually read it and i think maybe the problem is that people don't read um enough into headlines or um that they don't always click on the link and read the full document so i think if what comes out of my little podcast with you is somebody reads the UN Population Fund and it makes a difference to how they approach things, that's why I think podcasts are important and filmmaking is important. You know, I've always found it very, very hard to get any sort of programme over the line which doesn't portray women as victims. Let's have a programme about female genital mutilation or human trafficking or slavery where women are constantly in the paradigm of victim. Or let's find an individual who's doing something amazing instead of actually should we find an individual who's doing something terrible? How do you make a program about a system? It's very hard. But ultimately, having these types of conversations or program making that raises issues that allows people to be aware makes an enormous difference and more difference than I can make on my own being one shouty person. <laughs> and you know, and if that's clicked on on social media and people read it, then even if it's one person whose uh, ideas are altered, they don't have to agree with me, but they go off and have a think about how complicated issues are and how they might be solvable and what they can do to contribute to that. Um, it's a bit like recycling, isn't it? You know, it takes a long time for people to engage, but eventually we'll hopefully have a lot less waste. And that it's really the same. Let's not waste people. Uh, and or waste communities so that's um i suppose a bit school marmish and a bit mumsy but that's where i come from no, really it's it's absolutely perfect um it really it, for me is a big pleasure to be able to have these chats with you and um you know give you this very very humble platform to to spread your words and i'm going to link that report um um in this in this podcast so people can can follow up on that as well as your website and you know you inspire me and i know that people watching and listening can't help but be inspired by your words but more importantly your actions so um thank you so much for, for well, it's, it's very nice of you look I, I, if people feel that they want to uh, do anything that i do start by um reading it's as simple as that really just read and read and read and read i'm 
obsessed with reading things, writing about things, saying what I think. Sometimes I'm wrong, and that doesn't matter either. Um, <laughs> and, you know, find your place, you know, find what you're interested in. And it can be as little as putting a different book on your book club list or marching when you want to march your little bit that contributes to changes in the world. You don't have to be, I call myself occasionally an activist lawyer just because I, I find that expression quite entertaining and people don't think of me as a radical activist in that sense. So it, I, I wind people up by saying it sometimes, but you know, your little bit that can contribute is just the same as washing the milk bottle out and putting it in the recycling. You know, there some people do a little bit more than others, but that's because for me, I'm in a profession where I have the weight of that profession behind me, the weight of a university behind me and the weight of the research behind me. Uh, so where people are in the sort of position that I am, I hope that they use it um, in, the, in the same way that I do. They may not be as noisy as me, but there's a lot of lawyers across the world that are doing their best for communities. Yeah. Uh, so I suppose it's quite nice to end on loving lawyers rather than hating them. <laughs> loving lawyers and, and loving um, uh, cross and noisy lawyers. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And loving annoying lawyers, even better, yes. Right. Thank you so much. And yeah, all power to you. And um, maybe some months down the track, we can have another chat to to go deeper in some of these threads. Yes, of course. Look forward to speaking to you again and good luck with your filmmaking and podcasts. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much. Okay. Bye, Felicity. Thank you. Bye-bye. Many thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. And go to aliminalspace.earth to access all episodes available as both video and audio podcasts. But for now, many thanks again, and see you next time in Aliminal Space. Mm -hmm.